Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, as always, is Ellie Mistal. Welcome back, you, uh... As always, when I'm awake! I guess that's 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 kind of the problem uh, for those... I mean, obviously, you're all longtime listeners of the show, I would hope, but Ellie did not make our last recording because recording at three in the afternoon apparently is not enough for him to wake up. I was, I was up the night before last week until um, 3.30 in the morning writing about Linda Fairstein, um, trying to tear her a new asshole, and I got to bed late, and I woke up late, and I missed trains, and it just just didn't work out for me. Yeah, my favorite thing. Uh, speaking of that particular person, my favorite thing about her was today in Morning Docket. I included an item because Mariska Hargitay is not talking to her, even though like they're very close. Because Law and Order SVU is based on Linda Fairstein, and I I posit that maybe that should be Wolf's next project, like. Law and Order, Qualified Immunity, which is just all the previous characters from seasons and seasons of SVU <laughs> trying to sue for once the DNA evidence clears them. I would watch that. <laughs> that's great. Um, that's not what I'm pissed off about today. Oh, fair enough. I wouldn't think so. I'm actually pissed off about the thing we're going to talk about with our guests later. So I am I am calling an audible on the thing that I'm pissed off on. Cool. Because today is, we're recording this on the 20th. Um, it's the day after Juneteenth. And let me tell you, folks, being a black parent is some wearying shit, all right? Like, just trying to navigate young black people through this goddamn racist world is more difficult than you think. So yesterday, Juneteenth, tell my kid, it's Juneteenth, we're celebrating. He's like, what are we celebrating? I explain, freedom, liberation. His younger brother, who's only three, says, what is Freedom! Which, you know, is actually a difficult question. And I kind of stammered with it. And the, the, my son, the, the six-year-old, he pipes up with, freedom means black people get to play video games with white people. And fine. I go with that. That's fine, right? So life moves on. Later, I'm like, you know, it really is like biting my ass. Because I'm like, I dislike that my son has reduced the entire struggle, you know, 400-year struggle for human dignity, for freedom from bondage, to playing some video games with some white kids, right? I like, mean, that's not great. It's, so, it's, it's eyes on the prize. And in this case, the prize is a loot box. Right? Like, that's yeah. not right. So, yeah. so fine. So my wife comes home. I kind of explain to her my frustration. She's like, don't worry. I got this, right? So after every, just in our house, we always ask the kid, what did they learn today? Like, that's a thing that we do. So we kind of wait for the what did we learn today conversation. He, as we expected, tells mommy, oh, I learned about Juneteenth. I learned that we're free. Mommy says, what's freedom? He says, video games. And she's like, you know, freedom is also the right to have a family. Because when they were in slavery times, they could take children away and sell them to other people. And I look at my wife, I'm like, whoa, whoa, we're doing this now. And she looks at me like, yeah, we're doing this now. And so we do it, right? We, like, explain to him. And so this is why you were up till 3.30 in the morning with a crying <laughs> child then, right? <laughs> we explain to him child separation in the slavery context because my wife has figured out, and I go along with her, that this is also a way to talk about yeah. how terrible what Trump is doing. He's also separating children and whatever. And it's and, and what I'm trying to say, it's tough, right? Because, like, he's six, 
and he wants to play Mario Kart. And we're having to try to explain to him about child separation so that he can appreciate that he's not separated, right? Yeah. And so we do all this. You know, it takes it's maybe like 20 minutes of like, and just his eyes are like saucers. Like, oh, my God, right? And so I, he seems to be getting it. And, that, and, you know, he understands that kidnapping is bad. And when we're done, he looks up and he goes, wow, that's really bad, guys. But can you tell me what was good about slavery? And I'm just <laughs> I'm done, right? Like, because you almost want to cry, like, because you obviously want to raise your children to think that there is good in everything and think that there are both two sides to an argument and to understand and appreciate both sides. But when you raise black children and they say, can you tell me what's good about slavery? You're just, what do you say? I guess, I guess Kanye has some arguments on that. He, <laughs> he, he made that call a couple years ago. Um, yeah. I no said, there's nothing good. There's nothing ever good about it. It was all bad. And we can continue this conversation another time. And then we ended that whole bit with, um, since it's a holiday, does that mean I get to stay up late? Which I said yes. So Fair good enough. job, my kid. Fair enough. Well, I mean, yeah. Learning from the master. So, yeah. That's what I was pissed off about. Yeah, I, I don't know. This so racism is killing me inside. That's what I'm pissed off. About. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, that's fair. I, it, that story just seemed like a fun anecdote, not really a fun. Like, well, not. I mean, from 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 the perspective of those of us who who watch you struggle with raising children, <laughs> it was fun. But yeah, no, like no, that's that's terrible. But it was interesting and amusing to listen to as you uh, had to fight your way through video game, <laughs> the video game liberation movement. I I mean, I enjoyed that. Anyway, um, so yeah, so that's all that's been a problem for you? Yeah. You know, my younger son was trying to get in the conversation, mm. but we did not hear his, we did not hear him calling from us, oh. uh, for us from downstairs. You missed a call? Is we that what you're suggesting? <laughs> well done. Uh, well, if you're missing calls, if you're spread too thin, interruptions kill your productivity, but clients demand a quick response. The U.S.-based professional receptionists at Smith AI help law firms screen new clients and schedule appointments by phone and website chat. Plus, Smith AI integrates with your software, including Clio and LawPay. Plans start at just $60 per month. Get a free trial at smith.ai. That was perfect. Yeah, no, no, that was a good assist. I, like, you weren't giving me much with, I mean, there's not a good rule in there with, you know. Do you also hate slavery? Yeah, exactly, Maybe you right? should check out Smith yeah, AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, which, yeah, fair. So, yeah, that, that was a good, good assist. All right, today, um, our guest today is Hannah Stotland. She owns her own business called Admissions Consultants. Hannah, uh, just full disclosure, is a friend of mine from way back. Uh, we go back to law school together. Hannah has one of the most interesting practices that I can think of. She helps students who have screwed up, students who have messed up either academically, socially, legally, um, who have messed up and helps them get back on the good foot, get back into um, a position where they can go to college or go to law school. And we wanted to talk with her today in light of some of the recent news. Hana, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, I'm sorry that this is not a singing podcast because Joe <laughs> wouldn't be able to keep up with us. <laughs> um Hannah, obviously, I wanted to have you on to talk about Kyle um, Kashuv or Kushev. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name, but this is the uh, right-wing conservative kid who got into Harvard College, 
and then had his offer rescinded from Harvard after uh, screenshots came out of him uh, using the N-word, I think, 11 times in a shared Google document, um, making anti-Semitic comments about killing Jews and just generally being a 16-year-old douchebag. Harvard saw this and rescinded his offer. Um, you wrote, I thought, a very powerful piece in Slate kind of from your expertise arguing about why Harvard made the right decision and what the path forward is for, for Kashiv. That's right. And I work with, and I was once, a high schooler who had gigantically screwed up uh, in a different way and for different reasons than this screw up. Um, but all the same, I had pretty much ruined my education. And, and I think um, how you arrive at that spot can vary, but it feels really crappy either way. And it's been an incredible experience to work with so many of these students who have arrived at that bad place. Like, well, I've ruined my education. There's no hope anymore. Kids who have arrived at that bad place who I can help to move on to higher education. And hopefully, I mean, in my case, I got to have this incredible experience that I really valued and that still brings me a lot of joy as well as being a nice credential. So, uh, you know, my, my story had as much of a, of an educational pot of gold at the end of the rainbow as you could have. And many of my students' stories end the same way. And that looks different uh, depending on their goals and their majors and and their dreams, but to have a, a great experience and earn a good credential that helps them um, with their career goals. Uh, that's my life's work. This is always a hard topic for me to fully empathize with because I was a good boy. I mm -hmm. I, I was on the straight and narrow and never got attention in high school, um, once in middle school. But I remember that, right? Um, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of did what I was told when I was told to do it in the manner in which I was told to complete it. My entire, you know, pretty much until I started drinking. Uh, <laughs> well, you have to be twice as good to get half the credit, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's... That's what, as, as you're, you're talking earlier about black parenting, um, I don't know if that was explicit in your household, but you probably got the message. Mm -hmm. No, you're exactly right about that. And that's probably, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I was told to keep it together. But for the kids who didn't, you said something very interesting and I thought insightful. You said consequence and redemption are not intention. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And can you, can you kind of explain, like, from your practice, like, how consequence is actually, you know, the first step in the road to redemption? Right. And I, I don't want to minimize the fact that there are unfair or disproportionate consequences and that some of my students are getting consequences when we are not as certain as I would like to be about whether they committed the wrongdoing at issue. But in most of the cases, there isn't a dispute about whether the wrongdoing happened or not. He did it. He got caught red-handed. He admits it. And uh, an appropriate and proportionate consequence follows. And that is what often prompts the kind of soul-searching that can make it possible for the student to learn better. And for the most part, you know, there was an interesting... Uh, medical case study in the news about people who don't feel pain and how they end up grievously injured because they keep reaching into the pot of boiling water to get the spoon and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we need some pain and it doesn't have to be physical pain, but it can be, but we need some pain to remember that, oh, this action was harmful to me. 
right? I won't reach into that boiling water again. If you don't feel that pain, then you are very hampered in learning. Mm. So do you think that beyond the, so you've already written that you thought the, the consequence of having his offer rescinded was appropriate. Do you think that's enough? Do you think that that, that goes far enough? What, do you think anything else needs to happen or do you think that's about, that's about right? Well, I mean, it's, it's the harshest thing that Harvard has mm. and other institutions that have other types of relationships with him. You know, uh, it, it appears that we don't know the, the inside story here, but it appears that his organization, Turning Point USA, that he had been affiliated with, that um, he abruptly resigned just as this information came out. Mm -hmm. um, and so it seems that they they took the same angle as Harvard and how everyone else, you know, if you were one of his classmates who even if you disagreed with him politically, maybe you thought, you know, this is a good sparring partner maybe respected him at some level. I had friends like that in law school, some of whom are still my friends. I think each of those people has to decide, um, do I feel like this is the person I knew? Do I feel like this is someone I want to continue to associate with? Or, it, you know, would I, maybe on an interpersonal level, it would just be, I want to talk to you about this and make my own judgment about how you've learned and grown since you pulled this crap in front of your classmates. Yeah. So one of the things with that then that occurs to me then is that the right wings kind of rally around the flag and, and basically making him a martyr hero mm -hmm. um, is probably not helping. Well, I mean, if if he, if he wants to make a living as a commentator in our outrage machine, <laughs> then this is the right move. I mean, you know, he, he can be an aggrieved white male victim. There's a lot of high paying work in that field. <laughs> and if whatever, I don't know what his goals are, but it would not surprise me at all if he makes more money than I do in the next 12 months <laughs> off of this scandal, you know, mm -hmm. which, hey, it's a free country. This, this is what I'm saying. The racism is killing me inside because she's right, right? He's yeah, going yeah. to out earn me in the next 12 months by... He's going to get on more TV than I do. Yeah, I mean, if, if he wants, like, a, a, a speaking career. Yeah. You know, he didn't ask me for some free career advice. But I bet there's a lot of potential here. You know, if I were a soulless agent, I'm sure many agents have souls. Um, but if I, if I didn't care about somebody's history of racism and I just wanted to make some money, I'd be giving him a call. Maybe he already has an agent. Maybe he's already got paid speaking gigs. I don't know. But I bet he will now. Goodness. Well, I mean, TPUSA dumped it, and so like I, that's true. Yeah. So I, it's going to be interesting. I, I actually have been a little, little shocked at how this has played out because when the when the comments first started, a lot of right wing people went after him early, um, mm -hmm. largely because I think they were trying to play up the whole just being somebody who was part of a mass shooting shouldn't make you special, uh, and it fed uh -huh. their. It fed that narrative for them, and then they kind of have come around, and now they're defending. But then TPUSA dumps, so like I, it's an identity crisis. I feel for the right. Anyway, mm. oh, that makes sense. I want to talk a little bit about your 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 other work, Hana. You've mentioned you know you uh, Harvard Law graduate. Things worked out for you. When you're dealing with a, a student who who needs a redemption. Um, and wants to get into law school as opposed to uh, simply college, of which, you know, colleges, there are hundreds of them 
thousands probably, um, you can yes. find your way. With law schools, you know, they're 200, what, 204, 202. Like, you're, it's a much smaller pool. What do students need to show kind of a law school admissions committee? And then what do they need to show the character and fitness committee to end up being a lawyer after some personal problems in the past? Right. So you've already highlighted the biggest difference between an undergrad application and a law school application, which is that the law schools always are bearing in mind what do our bar pass rate numbers look like? And are we admitting someone who's not barrable, either because of character and fitness or because we think they're not good at standardized tests? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So that is something that they are thinking about absolutely from the word go when an application arrives in their office. And so you need to be able to show that you're going to be, now if you happen to be aware that there's a state that's particularly forgiving, and you intend to practice in that state, that's something that you might mention. But the biggest way to take character and fitness into account at the law school application stage is to think about making sure that no one in the closest possible read, no one could possibly interpret your law school application as having any dishonesty or hiding involved. Mm -hmm. This is something, you know, this is a good best practice for anybody applying to any kind of school. But the, the character and fitness process is far, far more searching than anybody else. You know, for example, everybody understands, except for bars, that if you had a juvenile conviction or something or, or any kind of criminal matter that was expunged, that expunged means gone, literally means we wiped it off the blackboard, right? The file's right. not in the courthouse anymore. Nope. <laughs> At the law school level, you better disclose that because if you you're going to need to disclose it again at the character and fitness level, and then they're going to compare it to your law school application. And if you are more candid with the bar than you were with law school, they say, why the discrepancy? And these can be big, big issues. It's not the crime, it's the cover-up when it comes to law school application and by extension, bar admission. But it was expunged. If anybody should understand what expunged <laughs> means, it should be the character and fitness board. Well, the applications could not be more clear. It says, even if this was expunged, erased, removed, vacated, like there's a whole list of lawyerly synonyms for expungement on a law school application and saying, no, you have to tell us anyway. Now, just disclosing it is probably not going to keep you out, right? I have students, mm -hmm. for example, um, I've worked with students who had, let's say, a public urination ticket while they were in college. Yeah, I've Wait, had that's illegal? Kids... <laughs> oh, that's illegal. <laughs> well, apparently it is in, in Virginia where, where that student was arrested. You know, pot tickets, things like that. And... Typically, the fact that you had that criminal involvement or perhaps a minor disciplinary record on your undergrad record, um, the fact that it's there is probably not going to keep you out. But a failure to disclose it will. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, you, like you said, it's not the crime, it's the cover up. I mean, that's. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah, exactly. And, but but I, I often sometimes students will come to me after they have. They got in a hole and then they kept digging and then they call me, mm. which, you know, I, I need to do a better job of getting the message out that I'm here. 
Um, <laughs> but for example, they did a first round of law school applications without disclosing the expunged arrest. Now they want to try again. They have a better LSAT score. They're going to reapply. But now you better, you're, you have to disclose this. Right. And I can't abet you repeating your dishonesty. Right. But all the schools that you applied to last year are going to see a discrepancy between what you said then and what you said now. And so I'm going to have to help them explain that in addition to explaining the underlying offense, the, uh, you know, ecstasy possession or whatever it was. How forgiving do you find the top law schools? I know that's a very kind of open-ended question, also because it kind of is open-ended what you define as top law school. But, right. you know, my my impression from a college perspective is that, yeah, a guy like Kushav, okay, he's not going to get into Harvard, but, you know, liberty is is right there. If you're at the law school level, do you find that the top Ivies and the T14 and whatever are forgiving or, or they just have so many applicants that they can kind of easily discard people with checkered pasts and kind of make those kids go to like second or third tier law schools? So the top law schools, however you define them, are relatively forgiving if you're a student who they otherwise clearly want to admit you know, you have exactly kind of numbers you're looking for, et cetera. And if it's clear that the problem on your record that you're disclosing is not going to make you unbarrable. Mm -hmm. And here, as in other kinds of difficulty, time is your friend, right? The, the further in the past the wrongdoing was, and the more life you've lived keeping your nose clean since then, the better argument you can make that uh, you're, you're going to just walk the straight and narrow from now on. And Harvard College and Harvard Law School did eventually admit me, despite, now this wasn't a criminal issue, but a, a pretty catastrophic academic failure with three semesters of straight Fs with the GED. Uh, I mean, you and, almost have to try to do that. That's, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. you, you especially have to try to do that at the kind of crunchy, holistic we educate the whole child kind of private school that I was going to. I mean, any any normal school would have expelled me. Like, okay, like she is officially, she is a conscientious objector to high school. She's not cooperating. Let's get rid of her. But they were like, no, that would make the student feel bad. We're a community. So I was enrolled all the way up until the end. Um, but the takeaway is that uh, eventually Harvard College took me and Harvard Law School took me without any kind of problem. That wasn't an issue. I had to apply three times to get into Harvard College. I applied very widely around the country, but that was a school that I had applied to three times. Harvard Law gave me no trouble at all. I sailed in. And then when I was doing character and fitness for the Illinois Bar, they made me petition to be permitted to sit the bar because of my failures in high school. Wow. But Harvard didn't have a problem with it. Wow. Um, I want to get you out of here on this because I know this is part of your work and, and I think it's a really important part of your work. Have you seen a change in how schools are handling people who have been either accused or certainly people who have been convicted of any kind of sexual assault? Because, you know, 10 years ago, I would imagine that, you know, a mere accusation of sexual assault um, that was not substantiated by any kind of legal process or conviction. That's not even a thing that doesn't even show up. Um, now I imagine it shows up. Um, how are you saying, and this is for colleges or law schools, how are you seeing them kind of deal with, are, 
are they dealing with it any differently now than they were three, four, five years ago? Um, if we're talking about people who have not been in the criminal system, mm-hmm. but who have been found responsible by a school process, mm-hmm. um, I think it's been hard for those kids to transfer for a while. The difference is that there's a whole lot more of them. Mm-hmm. And I have, if anything, less faith in those outcomes than I had before. Hmm. Um, that these are kind of a, an amateur uh, truth-seeking process that, that is really about protecting the institution as opposed to a, a justice process where neutral professional adjudicators weigh in on carefully investigated evidence. That's not how it goes for the most part in uh, college Title IX proceedings where there's an accusation of sexual misconduct. Uh, There's a huge range of how okay versus terrible these processes are, but a lot of them are truly terrible and none of them are great. None of them are what you would hope for in terms of justice, fairness, and looking for the truth that you would want for your kid, regardless of which side your kid was on. As, mm-hmm. as a complainant or as a respondent, you would want a truth-seeking, honest uh, process. And that's not really what's going on. So these kids, up until the Varsity Blues criminal admission scandal, which we should, we should have a whole other episode talking about that. <laughs> until then, I would have said that the kids uh, accused of sexual misconduct at previous schools are the most radioactive kids in the industry, far more so than my kids who are felons you know, who have either pleaded guilty or, you know, been found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt uh, with all kinds of procedural protection. So we, we know they did the felony. It's not in dispute. Um, those felons have a way easier time in the admissions office uh, really? after getting out of prison than my kids who have been, let's say, suspended for wrongful touching from a previous college. Wow. So if I'm, I mean, you're basically saying if I'm uh, in college and I get convicted for armed robbery, mm-hmm. that's going to work out better for me. It might. So I, uh, my, I don't have data about armed robbery, but I do have data. You know, I've, well, I have anecdote, I should say, but I have experience with students who had felony DUIs, uh, breaking and entering, uh, a lot of issues that were related to substance abuse that led them to get that felony. Those mm-hmm. kids coming out are a breeze for me to place in comparison to a student who has been found responsible by a faculty and staff panel of, quote, non-consensual sexual contact. And I say, quote, not because there isn't such a thing as consent, but because uh, they can be found responsible because the consent wasn't verbal. Mm-hmm. Um, or for, for other reasons that many of us would not look at and say, oh, well, you're a rapist because you did that. You should be, you belong in jail. Mm-hmm. Joe. Yeah, no, I... Um... I can kind of see why that distinction is because as you said like a lot of the a lot of people you're working with you can tie it to substance abuse or something like that and be mm-hmm. you can make the case a condition existed that no longer exists whereas I could see from the school's perspective saying that there's not really such a corollary for sexual misconduct you can't like say oh you know they they did that sexual misconduct thing but an event has happened they've they've they're fixed now or whatever it is. And so I, I could see why the school would be leery, even put aside the procedural issues. I could see why they might be more concerned about that than with your situations where you can 
can point to one thing and say something has changed that is definable and concrete that makes them now no longer a threat to other students. So so what you've just said is excellent law professoring um, <laughs> as far as harmonizing the cases in the body of evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think that that's what's going on. I think this is pure. I don't I don't think they're bringing that. I, I, I think what you said isn't wrong, mm -hmm. um, but that the schools are actually motivated by what am I getting sued for right now? What do I have to worry mm -hmm. about and what do I need to protect myself from? And there isn't so much a, a movement afoot to eradicate campuses of felons or of recovering addicts serve any other group. And that the present um, cultural moment that is emphasizing the eradication of men who are accused, many of whom are horrendously guilty of horrible behavior, along with whoever else, you know, the net dredges up and we need to get rid of them. And we get terrible press and expensive lawsuits and all kinds of stuff like that stemming from our Title IX actions. We're under a microscope for that. And we're just not under a microscope as far as if we admit a student who did a DUI and he does another DUI, we are very unlikely to get sued for that or get a, a terrible headline in the paper. Mm. I mean, so the takeaway is it's all lawyers' fault all the time. <laughs> I mean, that's really what you're saying. I mean, it's 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 almost yes. it's it, part of it. It's as much as I think Joe is exactly right about why maybe it should be this way. I think okay. you're right that the reason why it's this way is not that kind of deep level of analysis. It's much more kind of immediate cover your ass lawyering, um, which is a good way to end an episode of thinking like a lawyer. It's a little bit like, you know, uh, doctors say I have to practice defensive medicine because I, I get sued for malpractice. So this is defensive medicine. I think this is defensive administrating on the, a part of universities. And, and we see it expressed through the admissions office. Thanks. All right. Hannah, yeah. that was great. Thank you so much. Uh, Joe? Oh, yes. Yeah. Now, oh, so you don't have memorized the spiel no, for the end? No, All right. not even a little bit. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you should be subscribed to the show. You should give a reviews. Always write something. Don't just result with the stars because uh, that helps. Uh, you should read Above the Law. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. Actually, Hannah, if people wanted to get a hold of you all, how would they do that? So my website is hannastotland.webs.com. If you Google Hannah Stotland, it should be the first hit. You can also find me on Facebook. Uh, if you Google Hannah Stotland, no H at the end of my name. And thanks so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. And thanks also to uh, Smith AI, who is uh, sponsor sponsored the episode. Uh, you should listen to other law podcasts from the Legal Talk Network and the Jabot. And now I think I've gotten through everything. Peace. Cool. All right, thanks. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.